Welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Design's podcast on all things branding and digital marketing. Since 2008, Peralta Design has launched hundreds of brands with award-winning identities and websites. Join our hosts Ramon and Jorge as they use decades of combined experience to tackle topics with past clients, industry partners, and the rest of the PD crew. At Peralta Design, we launch brands. But for now, let's launch right into this episode of Mission Control. Hey everybody, welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Design's official podcast for everything branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship, where we respect the grind and we reclaim the American dream. I'm your host, Ramon Peralta from Peralta Design, and we launch brands. Today, I'm very excited to have a special guest with us. To me, the man is a legend. Uh, to others, he may just be a myth, you know, but he is the real deal uh, he, he brings a wealth of knowledge that I know our designers, especially out there, are, are going to find very, very interesting. The man has his own font house, so I can't wait uh, to hear all about it. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome Joe Sif Tracy to the show. Hi, Ramon. How are you? Excellent. Joe, do you mind if we call you Joe or do you like Joseph? What do you? Prefer? Oh, no. Joe's perfect. Joe. All right. So we're going to go with Joe Tracy. Uh, you and I met some time ago through a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, Harry, uh, mm-hmm. over at Minuteman Press. Yeah. Um, and ever since then, I've, I, I, every time we, we, you know, we speak, you're, you just you teach me so much. You're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, and recently, on, on social media, where we follow each other, um, we were we were reminiscing on Type Styler, and and I just said, you know what? I, this is just such a good content. You know, I really just want to get you on the show. So why don't we start with, give us your origin story, a bit of a backstory on your career, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll dive right into all the fun font stuff. Sure. Well, um, I started uh, taking an interest in uh, fonts really as an outgrowth of graphic design, but in some ways it started before that. Um, I was lucky enough to take the famous art of school course in, uh, when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, it was about $600 or something back in those days. So it was very uh, uh, incredible that my parents uh, uh, subscribed to it for me, you know. So in that, uh, there's a terrific section uh, about poster design. And just being uh, exposed to that, um, it, it taught me that type could be very evocative, you know. And I didn't really understand much about it, but I knew that it, spoke to me somehow. And so as I, you know, uh, approached my teenage years, um, I started taking an interest in uh, designing uh, my own fonts. And while I was doing other things, babysitting or whatever, I'm the oldest of six boys in our family. So there was always babysitting going on, you know. Uh, I would also uh, fill uh, notebooks and sketch pads with font designs. And um, Later on in uh, art class in high school, uh, I stumbled upon some uh, graphic design and advertising uh, trade magazines like Print and Communication Arts and uh, Art Direction Magazine was a big one back in those days. And um, it opened me up to uh, this whole other world of what was called commercial art back in those days and Mm -hmm. advertising. And, um, you know, I can 
spontaneously draw and paint and all of that too. And I had thought, well, you know, I'm better well uh, just resign myself to being beholden to gallery owners for the rest of my life and hope to God that I could get uh, shown and maybe eventually make some money because, you know, there were already all these stories about um, uh, destitute artists and everything else. And, oh, my, you know, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So <laughs> discovering graphic design and advertising and marketing and all that was really um, just um, – a real eye-opener for me. And um, along the way, I decided, well, you know what? Um, and it was as simple as this. I decided I can do that. So I uh, focused on uh, learning all about the craft and all of its derivations, you know, and um, taught myself how to do all that and then apprenticed into uh, uh, advertising and graphic design through a small um, uh, one-man design studio uh, where I'm from, which is in Norfolk, Virginia, and um, then took an interest, you know, further interest in type as I moved from agency to agency. Um, the largest agency I was at was in Philadelphia, about $137 million agency, you know, with several hundred employees and all of that um, over time. And uh, so I uh, took an interest in uh, this one design that later became uh, TF Bryn Mawr. And um, it was actually based on a logo that I did for a small uh, dog groomer, uh, believe it or not, in Norfolk at the time, probably long gone now. And um, uh, I decided to just, uh, after the logo, you know, just sort of start fleshing out, well, what would other letters in the font potentially look like? You know, would this go anywhere, right? And once I proved to myself that, you know, that actually hangs together pretty well and, and could be pretty successful, then what would the rest of a font family look like? What would the other weights be? This actually started as kind of a, an extra bold weight. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of working backwards through like, well, what would the lighter weights look like, you know? And then what would italics uh, look like? What should they do? Because you can't just even though many people do, you really shouldn't just like uh, slant the Roman to make an italic because it needs to have uh, calligraphic um, niceties uh, to it. And mm -hmm. so what would that do, you know? And um, uh, along the way, I had other type designs that I came up with as well and actually uh, won a uh, uh, contest uh, for a, a, another couple of designs that I did through the old a dry transfer lettering company called Chart Pack um, that uh, was a lot of fun to use back in those days before everything went digital. And, um, and then after about uh, six months of lobbying uh, Linotype and Letraset and some other, uh, you know, predominant brands back in those days, Linotype, uh, finally, their director of typography uh, at the time, um, decided that he really liked the design. And... Um, I had actually uh, developed it into six different varieties. And we, we entered the process, got through the contract, entered the process of uh, delineating it all, and then um, started working through how to digitize it on their early digitizing system that they had. Uh, you know, and this was um, 1978 to 1983 was when this was all going on. And digital was just, coming up, you know, as an outgrowth of CAD CAM and what that was doing for 
Detroit and um, automotive design and things like that, right? And um, so uh, Linotype decided that things were going so well with it that uh, they actually wanted to release it as eight varieties, uh, four Romans and four corresponding italics. So I had to suddenly go back and, and rework a lot of it, but it finally got released in uh, January of 1984 worldwide on their, uh, what were at the time their proprietary uh, typesetting uh, system called the uh, Linotype VIP. And um, with those royalties, uh, I started Tracy Faces uh, Incorporated in um, 1984. Wow, and, let, me, uh, let, me, let me pause there because I want to pick up right there uh, in a few minutes on, on Tracy Faces because that's your company, it's your own font house. But there was so much there that you dropped uh, knowledge on that I, I wanna touch upon because I'm old enough to, I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, in the 80s, uh, you know, 70s and 80s. And so I could identify with something you said about fonts and what would the rest of this font family look like. And I can identify it in the graffiti world where we used to actually just make up fonts uh, as, we, as we drew. And you would pick up uh, an R from somebody else or an S from somebody else, and then you'd try to figure out well, what would the uppercase of mm -hmm. this type of, you know, character uh, look like. And I don't think a lot of people think that way. And so that fascinated me, that share about how you were looking at these fonts and wondering, based on a logo, I think that's a gift in itself. I know you and I also share this ability to draw and paint spontaneously. I too wanted to be an artist, but I specifically remember a fine artist. I specifically remember in my high school yearbook, my, my career goal was commercial artist. I was smart enough to know that if you wanted to get paid, the term was commercial art. Otherwise, what we would see on the news were, or the TV were the starving artists and the struggling artists. <laughs> there was never like a positive connotation. Right. Or, you, or you'd have to be the rare genius of, of a Basquiat or somebody who, right. uh, you know, I wrote a thesis on whether Basquiat was exploited or whether he was exploiting the system or did the system exploit him. And you can go on a tangent with that. But to get, getting back to the evocative nature of fonts, um, there's this Power of Logos book. And, and, and I love how you started the conversation with, lo, with a logo you did for that dog grooming place because there is a there's no other way to really prove the evocativeness uh, of a of a type font or face with than with a logo mm -hmm. or when you're communicating to, for a business there's a there's this famous example of a hand-painted sign that says you know farm fresh eggs and it's painted in like drippy paint mm -hmm. and and it looks like you're like wow that those eggs must be super fresh it look, they, they must be organic and then they did the same exact, they used the same exact font for a, uh, you know, flying lessons, you know, and it was paint dripping and it was on this wooden sign. And it's like, you would not, you would not hop in a plane with whoever the pilot was that made this sign because it doesn't evoke safety right. or, or anything like that. Exactly. So, so, so fonts are so powerful. Um, and, and, I, and I just, I just wanted to point that stuff out. I do remember uh, uh, you know, I am old enough to remember before pagination, the transfer of type, mm -hmm. rub off letters, you know, letter sets, 
-hmm. and all that. So I just love that we're taking this history lesson or going back through time in typography. Um, I'm big on kerning and letting. I think it's something that that our our young people are are missing out on because with the advent of computers, it's like they're just typing in and changing the font and going with it and not realizing like you can adjust the kerning and letting to make your design even tighter mm-hmm. and better and, e- and ultimately easier to read. I also think some people design for the sake of design and don't realize, well, now you've just made that even harder to read. And the whole point of typography is to make it, you know, easy to read and effective. Absolutely. And in fact, I have to tell you, uh, uh, it's one of the reasons why I started Tracy Faces was because I realized uh, from years of uh, specking or specifying type myself from uh, printed specimen books back in those days, you know, mm-hmm. um, that um, something was definitely wrong with the way um, uh, the system of uh, structuring type and, mm-hmm. and how the design lived within the structuring of what was called the M square and um, and everything about it, uh, mm-hmm. how the uh, letter form design was done, the spacing between the letters and all of that. And I discovered, um, you know, I was totally focused on uh, work for my, my clients, right? You know, their uh, advertising needs and, and all of these things in agencies that I was at. And I took the time to uh, go back through the history of it and discovered that the uh, system of type design Um, is actually based on what's called the 12-point master, which was something that Linotype and then other manufacturers, CompuGraphic and some of the others, uh, sort of copycatted. Um, And it's a system that evolved out of um, uh, how uh, mediocre uh, printing presses could actually print in the 1700s and 1800s. I mean, they're, they're always museum books or gallery books or things like that that stood um, in front of um, most of the printing that was being done Mm -hmm. uh, during those um, centuries, right? But by and large, the way type evolved was so that the local uh, type shop, um, whoever they were, wherever they were, whatever their skill set was, that they could do um, the bare minimum of – typesetting, you know, which was done mostly in metal or lead or, um, or wood back in those days, and, um, and that the typeset page would live uh, and be readable um, and, and all of that on the paper and with the inks that were available back then as well. You had this whole phenomenon called ink squash that was uh, primarily out of letterpress, but also in early offset printing. Um, that uh, uh, caused the letter forms in you know the very microscopic size, like twelve mm-hmm. point, right, or mm-hmm. six point, or something like that, to actually um, widen or thicken, um, just because of the paper and because of the ink. So you know, by the seventies and eighties, um, and after the Mac launched, uh, the Mac was actually launched uh, thanks to Steve Jobs, with the ability to put up to 32,000 kerning pairs in a font, but they weren't telling anybody that. You know, if you were a certified Apple developer, you would see it in their technical notes as a sidebar, but that's the only place that people were seeing it. So most of the fonts by Adobe 
and Bitstream and et cetera, that were being released in uh, the early days of desktop publishing, mm-hmm. just from the better houses. And they were some of the better houses, right? Yeah, I, I used to have nightmares with uh, trying to install fonts that- Oh, then there was that, yeah. Where you had some that were true type. Right. And some that were uh, PostScript. Right. And I mean, I, I just, I remember even having to install font managers or suitcases right. Right. I don't know if you, you obviously you must oh, sure. remember suitcase. Oh, sure. But you just take for granted now that your fonts, you know, you can just double click them and everything works. But you could completely destroy your computer if you had a corrupt or a conflict. Right. With, with one, you know, like so there, there were some fonts that were actually created by multiple houses. Right. Um, and, and they would often conflict if they had the same uh, name. Right. 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 Oh, exactly. There were all kinds of things like that. We were, uh, you know, I didn't know it then, really. Um, I was having too much fun with it all then to really think about it. But we were all sort of beta testing for Apple and Adobe and everybody else. I mean, a lot of those things, the early operating systems, the early software um, was all being uh, released way too soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, even the, the printers, uh, the first uh, laser printer, Apple laser printer we got, the Apple laser writer was, uh, you know, I had to lease it for like $8,000 or something. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and you would send a page to it, uh, you know, when you're ready to leave for the day and, you know, just hope that it actually printed by the next morning, right? And half the time you come back you're and it had timed out. <laughs> and these were with the built-in fonts. I mean, these, these really craggy, awful-looking uh, built-in fonts that were part of the original Laser Writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they it couldn't even print from its own firmware. You know, mm-hmm. it's all it's onboard fonts. You know, let alone later trying to start using the. Remember, first they were encrypted, and you had to unlock, pay to unlock them. The early Type Three fonts from Adobe. And then uh, everybody kept pressuring them to um, reverse it, you know, by reverse engineering uh, the, the type one specification for fonts, which they were saving for themselves. Um, uh, they were, you know, pressuring them to unlock that. And finally, they, they unlocked and distributed the code to make type one fonts, which opened the door for uh, real font smoothing. And all the things that we take for granted today. Oh, my know. God. I, I, that's why I'm saying the, 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 the folks that are out there listening, you guys that are born in the 90s or, or new designers, or you, you just, you know, this is, this is memory lane. This is the, the font suffrage movement, uh, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. it. Those were some tough times because you could literally break a printer. Uh, like you said, you, you had to leave – jobs rasterizing overnight to process these fonts uh, and, and, and uh, you have to upgrade your memory to be able to deal with some of these fonts. Um, but from, from a business owner standpoint, because a lot of our listeners are, are entrepreneurs and they want to start companies, you, you said you took the royalties from one thing and you use that to start Tracy Faces. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Like, did, Were you already designing? Were you freelancing? Did you just set out to do the font thing from day one? Well, um, you know, it was an interesting thing. I started paying attention to CAD CAM uh, like around 1982. And uh, the way I uh, tend to remember it is that uh, it was um, 
GM or Lee Iacocca or somebody being on the cover of Time or Newsweek magazine with some CAD CAM drawing of uh, automobile design in the background, right? And I'm thinking and I'm reading the article, well, obviously this is the wave of the future. I started subscribing to um, CAD CAM uh, industry publications and, and all of that. And through all of that, I discovered that uh, there was a, a CAD CAM movement going on in the world of type design as well. Um, uh, a, a scientist in Germany um, uh, adapted uh, vector curves for um, uh, type design from um, the world of designing boat hulls uh, and all of the kinds of um, curvatures, you know, the, and complex curves that need to be so smooth and that kind of a thing. And that, um, as I understand it, that's how uh, the first uh, CAD CAM systems actually uh, uh, developed for type design in a company in Texas called Altsys, which um, then uh, later developed uh, the program Aldus Freehand. Yes, and, I, I, uh, I used to work at Aldus Freehand. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. Macromedia uh, bought them ultimately, mm -hmm. and right, and uh, they also uh, Altsys also designed uh, uh, Fontographer, which is a type right. design program that I enjoy using, and um, uh, it uh, and that's how it evolved uh, and got more sophisticated over time, and um, because uh, we were already you know, on the scene with uh, like the Bryn Mawr design and I had started um, using uh, Fontographer to develop my uh, TF Forever and TF Habitat and TF Crossword uh, puzzle fonts. Um, we started, uh, uh, you know, becoming a, a regular beta tester with Altsys uh, for their various products. And um, uh, ended up, um, you know, working, uh, getting a lot of publicity out of that with them as well, um, you know, over the next uh, decade, I would say, you know. And, um, and that's how it started. Uh, it really started out of paying attention to what was going on in CAD CAM and being, I, I think, being in the right place at the right time in many ways. Right. As, uh, as everything evolved, uh, I got a chance to see the, um, and work with the early um, uh, CAD CAM digitizing system that was called Icarus that uh, Linotype had put in um, when we were working on the Bryn Mawr design, they invited me to um, their uh, letter drawing office, as it was called, which was in a, um, a building next to Madison Square Garden in New York. And uh, so I wor uh, worked with them over the next two weeks, um, starting to digitize the Bryn Mawr design from the um, pencil drawings and uh, ruby lith uh, cuttings and amber lith cuttings and things like that that I had yeah. done, you know, and um, and work with their uh, digitizing staff to make sure it was all adapted properly and all that. And then, you know, the funny thing is later on, like uh, three or four years later, um, I finally got a copy of the code that was done and found that uh, the digitizing that was done then didn't nearly have the clarity um, that we needed to go forward with uh, the, the smoothness and clarity that PostScript fonts could have and needed to have to go into the next decade. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up um, having to throw out all that digitizing and re-digitize it all over again myself. 
Mm. Um, and uh, so, it, you know, it's really been about uh, staying ahead of, you know, not just keeping up with the technology, but also staying well ahead of the technology uh, as it goes as well. And how, how have you been able to monetize it? Do you, did you like, did you model a licensing agreement after one of these other font houses or did you do anything disruptive in how you monetize your fonts? Well, I've always uh, really f uh, followed uh, what Adobe and some of the other companies do uh, pretty closely. But we, uh, you know, as a matter of course, uh, uh, I've always built in uh, so much added value into our fonts uh, mm -hmm. just on the level of, um, better design, um, design throughout an entire font family, um, uh, developing them from the point of view that they shouldn't be one-shot wonders, but they should be evergreen and useful for decades, uh, you know, and, and that kind of a thing. Um, the amount so nothing, of... Nothing that's really too trendy. You're more into the classic... Uh, you know, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, uh, it's a good idea, like with a lot of catalogs, it's a good idea to have uh, something for everybody as much as you possibly can. Right. And uh, the fact is that by, uh, by approaching it the way I did, um, we actually ended up uh, being very trendy um, from, from time to time over the years, like my... both MTV and VH1 and uh, a couple of different titles for shows that they had on at the time. Um, the art director uh, of the um, uh, album um, for the Smashing Pumpkins called The Airplane Flies High, uh, that's set in Avian. And um, so that uh, just, uh, you know, the market's exposure to those uh, created a, a worldwide trend uh, mm -hmm. as well. And, um, you know, it tends to be cyclical, uh, uh, like a lot of design uh, 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 techniques tend to be cyclical in some ways, you know. And uh, so we'll see um, many of the fonts, like my TF Forever series, uh, a sans serif series, um, be, um, you know, sort of um, uh, predominant uh, year after year and utilized uh, uh, say by major magazines, you know, for a decade or more. And then some um, uh, uh, come and go, you know. So mm -hmm. it, it's a good idea to have something for everybody, but be aware that, um, you know, it's uh, just as in the world of uh, marketing, you can't be everything to everybody. And right. so you have to also um, uh, follow your own star when it comes to uh, how you feel about design what you think needs to be different, uh, something that nobody else is doing. And um, how, did your, how did your font survive the, the era of the bevel and the, and the drop shadow? And, and well, you know, now we're yeah. moving towards this clean. I've always preferred clean because I come from a print background. I, huh? I, think, I think the, the new designer that's coming strictly from digital really does not have the appreciation that you have when you're trying to separate something by four color process, or you're trying to line up registration marks and things that have kind of gone by the wayside, but yet they still provide you a, a strong foundation for that clean design. That's when you take into consideration, is this going to reproduce well, right. you realize that all this fluff that you add is actually going to make it more difficult 
to embroider something or silkscreen something right. Or, right. or transfer it into different media. Uh, hence why gradients and bevels and drop shadows are not a good idea. Uh, but you have seen that those trends come and go. So, well, yeah, and, and many others. I mean, uh, you know, people tend to believe, for example, that Helvetica is, uh, uh, has always been popular since it was introduced in 1957. But in fact, uh, just during the, uh, the 70s, um, you know, when I was getting started in art direction, already, and this is just one example, right? This happened to many typefaces like Souvenir, for example. Um, you know, uh, it would be popular for a while, and then everybody would hate it for a while. Then it would it would be time to revive it again, and then everybody would hate it for a while. You know, and so these things sort of uh, ebb and flow uh, over time. Um, and uh, I think the way that we um, have survived in terms of, um, you know, other techniques like gradients and 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 all of that is that, because the um, fonts were uh, are uh, designed better, um, just intrinsically, you know, they're designed um, more simply. They're uh, uh, they're designed properly with all the control points in the right places. Um, very simple things like that. Paying attention to those kinds of details um, make them uh, survive against the, uh, say, you know, specialized uh, processing software like TypeStyler and some of the other ones. Um, because if you have any areas within the letter forms where, you know, the notches or the joining areas don't come together properly, or you haven't defined the curves properly and things like that, um, it'll show up right away in, uh, modification software like that, you know, and it'll look like that one example I showed you that was in published magazine, uh, where you knew looking at that S, you know, from whatever font that was in impact or something, um, that the, the bottom area of it looked kind of okay. But mm -hmm. all of a sudden, something was definitely going on with that top area, you know, and, and they just published it and nobody paid attention, you know? Yeah, now, how much of it is being handled now by software? What I mean by that is you probably can remember a time where you had to kind of draw every single font character mm -hmm. out. And now mm -hmm. when you're creating like the process of creating a new font now, um, what, 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 is there any artificial intelligence that's coming into play where you can render a character or two and then the software may render out the rest of the alphabet? Well, uh, there have been uh, some examples of this over time with, uh, you might remember uh, Adobe's uh, Multiple Masters series. Uh, there's a, a new movement of uh, variable fonts um, that uh, will um, do what's called uh, interpolation or extrapolation to make other variations of uh, existing designs. Um, there. Uh, a couple of things about that. One is that the uh, design itself often has to be um, structured in such a, um, a homogenized kind of way that, um, you know, it's not very evocative. You know, it becomes uh, somewhat ordinary. Um, sometimes within the software itself, you can do things like, um, say, if you've got uh, the shape of the um, capital I done the way you like it, whether it's serif or sans serif, you can clone 
that shape and make your capital H out of it or start how you feel about making the capital J or K or L or something like that, you know? So there is, um, just as you'd find in Adobe Illustrator uh, or freehand, you know, um, you can do things like um, uh, clone and copy and paste and things like that um, to help um, speed up the entire process in, in some ways. Um, there's uh, within font design itself, how you place the accents over characters in the entire character set. Um, that's a lot of copy and paste uh, in many ways, but then, you know, you still got a lot of microscopic movement to get them into just the right location. Yeah. I'm going to mention a few fonts and then, and see what reaction you, they get out of you. Cause this is, I'm probably dating myself based on, on this collection, but there are certain fonts that stand out to me. Uh, Fajita is one of those where I kept seeing it all the time, you know, used for anything that had to do with like Hispanic or Latino culture. Sure. Uh, Cooper Black, uh, mm -hmm. also known as Cookie in some other, uh, uh, you know, programs. Um, I think of uh, Myriad, uh, Futura. Um, I think of um, the ones that get ridiculed often, like uh, Comic Sans and mm -hmm. Papyrus. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some some of those, uh, and 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 more recently, we've seen a popularity, and I think it, it was largely in part due to the um, Obama campaign with Gotham. Mm -hmm. um, sure. and, and then all of a sudden, like I still prefer to use Gotham, and for a while, I, I was really hooked on uh, Franklin Gothic uh, as an alternative to uh, to Helvetica. Mm -hmm. uh, over the years, are there any fonts? And I know you're biased because you've got your own. Sure. Uh, are there any fonts that for you represent a certain time in, in American history? Is there, is there some association with pop culture and certain fonts um, over the years or, or are there, are there just some fonts like obviously Helvetica is an example, but uh, that just kind of stand the test of time and, and uh, stand oh, oh, sure. that way? Well, you know, there are really uh, several parts to that. One is that uh, some of the uh, fonts you met, mentioned are uh, really very well designed, uh, like Papyrus, uh, you know, Helvetica in, in many ways, um, uh, Gotham. Uh, you know, they're all very well designed. And at the same time, uh, their success on the page relies on uh, the page designer uh, to take the time to understand them and, and make sure that the choice of them or whatever the font is, is right for the storytelling that you're trying to do. What, um, what the intention of, um, you know, the marketing director and the copywriter, um, what, you know, what the uh, client's needs are, what the needs of the product are in order to make it um, relevant and stand out and, and all of that kind of thing. And on top of all that, if you've got a, um, a graphic designer or an art director or web uh, designer, let's say, who is um, complacent about paying attention to those kinds of choices, you can end up with um, usages that are just mediocre or bland or uh, sloppy, you know, and all of that. And um, now there are some um, fonts like Comic Sans that, uh, I think, you know, are really kind of beyond help in many ways, right? I mean, you know, if, if only, it's a good idea. It's a really good idea, you know, to have a fun design that can be universally used for daycare at the same time that, you know, 
inner office memos and all this other kind of stuff, right? I mean, it, it, you know, it's a good idea, but, um, uh, and I've mentioned this to uh, the, the designer at Microsoft who created it. Uh, we, uh, we belong to this private blog. Uh, and, um, you know. Wait a minute. It, you know the guy, you know the actual guy that created Comic Sans? Oh, yeah. Just, just through this blog, uh, <laughs> a, a bunch of, uh, uh, hi, uh, let's call them higher-end designers, uh, mm-hmm. participate in, in a blog over the last couple decades. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was just through that. And, uh um, yeah, uh, Vincent uh, Canari, I, I believe his name is. And um, so, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a good idea. Could have been drawn better is basically what it is. But like a lot of, um, a lot of designs, uh, Souvenir, for example, whether it was the original Souvenir um, uh, from the uh, early 1900s or ITC's uh, revised version of Souvenir, both were absolutely fantastic. You know, I've gotten a chance when the ATF type company was going out of business and I went to the auction, I had a chance to actually hold some of the original uh, proofs uh, in my hand that were done from the early 1900s, you know, and I could see the fidelity and um, real electricity, you know, mm-hmm. that you get out of looking at a, a really well done design. And um, same was true of ITC's design of it. But, you know, what happens is that uh, in many ways, fonts can get chosen for the wrong use. They can get uh, typified as belonging to a certain undesirable part of pop culture. And that's all it really needs as a catalyst to be, you know, sort of tossed aside, you know, in the dustbin of font history for, for a while, you know. Um, and it's unfair in many ways sometimes, but a lot of it really comes from um, the simple things, um, you know, uh, not linking up the type properly to the marketing brief or the creative brief, you know, and, and then not paying attention to what you're doing. Let it go, you know, letting it go out in a badly spaced or kerned way, you know, all of these things are inexcusable. It happens enough, it starts snowballing. Yeah. Yeah, the souvenir reference is definitely one of the fonts I, I use quite often and uh, reminded me of other ones like Bodoni and uh, mm-hmm. Palatino and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bookman and, and, and some of those. And, and um, you know, for, for the viewers, uh, uh, listeners out there, when we refer to serif and sans serif, uh, when we refer to Roman and italic, they're all variations. Um, and, and depending on the application, um, the serif uh, for the uninitiated is that little tail that you see on the letters that you might find like in a, in, in a Times Roman uh, uh, font versus a Helvetica, which doesn't have the tails at the end of its characters. Or a little foot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, a little foot is a good way to put it, yeah. Um, we may have some, sometimes our listeners, you know, run the gamut, and, and I think that the show can be educational for me, it's also, this is very nostalgic having this talk with you. And you mentioned type styler and uh, that's what sparked this invitation is because uh, I worked at a newspaper right out of college, uh, right at the advent of pagination. And, um, and so I was like waxing and uh, you know, the, the, the film and, and, and doing the paste ups and so forth. But um, I worked part-time at a print shop after I got out of work. Uh, you know, so I worked from nine to five and then from like five to nine, I, I worked at this print shop and 
I had this little Mac Plus, um, and, oh, yeah. and I used Type, type Styler to do mm-hmm. these, all these flyers, and, and you, you know, and they were, I, I can remember vividly, uh, I'm traumatized by the little paintbrush that was just kind of... <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Believe me, because it seemed like it would, it was like... You know, it's like the spinning beach ball nowadays. Yeah, right. right. Like OS, right? It's like, oh my God. Oh, it's just this little, and you're just hoping that the effect you wanted is going to like yeah. get rendered properly. And you might wait, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, and then you you just delete it and have to have to try another effect. But um, you you sent me you sent me some graphics that that I you know had where this uh, aired. You know, uh, you know in video we could share but the the um the arches talk a little bit about type styler you know because you played a role in it but uh specifically like i like the fan arch i i'm not a fan of the plum arch mm-hmm. and and you know, let's talk a little bit about that because type styler uh will always have a place in my heart as a quick way to make fun party flyers or uh, announcements or invitations because it just came with so many effects that you could you could do with the fonts and so oh it's very true in fact uh, some of the uh, metallic uh, effects and things like that let alone the type flexing oh effects, yeah were really well done they were uh, even from the very beginning really really well done um, so what we're talking about with the type flexing here is that there are several different ways to uh, flex type around uh, a, a, you know, a circle or mm-hmm. some other kind of uh, curvature, right? And um, the most simple way to think about it is um, like through one point perspective where you've got the center point of the circle and imagine you know, these radiating lines coming out from the center out to the circle itself. And so, um, rudimentary programs will basically take the letters uh, in a set phrase and just um, uh, go directly along that radiating line and rotate the letter without doing anything else to the letter. And that creates this very um, uh, choppy, amateurish kind of look. And you see this from time to time to this day. Um, But the better way to do it was actually developed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s back in the photo typesetting days, photo headline typesetting days, where they went beyond um, the uh, darkroom optics of just uh, setting headlines um, on a uh, machine like the photo typositor or something like that, but they um, also uh, developed a series of uh, lenses, anamorphic uh, lenses, that could provide different kinds of flexibility to type. So now, instead of your type just being flat headlines, say you had a promotional headline for uh, a point of sale um, header card or something like that, now you could actually flex the type around in an arch. Well, just within the arch uh, motif, there are a couple different ways to do it. The most important thing to look for in both is that Uh, the top and bottom of the letter forms need to very smoothly flex along the curve. It's actually possible now with everything in vector outlines, um, and especially when the fonts you're using are drawn well and can survive the process, you can actually flex very smoothly along any kind of uh, complex curve. Now, uh, there are a couple different 
uh, ways that you can do this that you were just referring to. One has um, everything still radiating out of the center as though it was one point perspective. And that's um, uh, smooth along the top and bottom. Everything is, is modified um, as it goes digitally. And um, the other is instead of radiating out of the center, you're, you've actually got straight um, verticals throughout, and then you're modifying that straight vertical around the curve shape. So um, just as two examples, um, there are many different ways that you can enhance your typography if you're, say, um, you know, doing a special point of sale headline or uh, signage. If you work in a sign shop, for example, uh, where type styler is very popular, um, uh, that logo that you're working on might be able to be enhanced, um, you know, through uh, type flexing in that way. And then it goes beyond that uh, as really the, um, the gold star amongst all the type flexing programs. It goes farther than that to help you allow other, um, uh, add other kinds of special effects. Uh, yeah, I, for me, for me, it saved a lot of time. Um, I know that we'd be joking about the paintbrush, but um, you could fill up an entire fly. If you were doing a one-page document, it wasn't the type of software where you could you could create multiple pages. Um, you know, lay out a magazine with type styler. Right. But if you were looking to do a one-pager with a lot of funky, uh, you know, special effects like flag and wave and rise you know now they're all starting to come back um it, it, was, it was definitely very very effective um talk a little bit about um i mean i know we, we bounced around with um the different types of fonts that were back in the day now we have google fonts which you know as a web from a web designer because we're kind of going from print into web and back uh and we're going back and forth in time as well but Google fonts allow us now to be a little bit more creative on the web because there was a point where, you know, I could design a website and pick a font. And then when you viewed that website, it would default to whatever mm -hmm. fonts you had on your machine. Mm -hmm. uh, does Tracy faces play a role at all with, with web fonts these days, mm -hmm. or is that something that's in the horizon? Oh, we've actually, uh, we actually started getting uh, requests for web fonts around 2009, and okay. uh, we started selling them. Uh, you can see them on our website and uh, see the choices for buying them on our website. Um, we actually started selling them in 2010 and uh, started selling them almost immediately. And the interesting thing is that by making them available um, not only by themselves, but as bundled packages with uh, the uh, open type font format, which is primarily for print, um, we actually right out of the gate uh, started selling uh, the bundled packages and do uh, even today all over the world. Excellent. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing. I I, I just uh, am fascinated that you've been able to build this company over the years and 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 just stay with it. You mentioned that a couple of times of just not being in the moment, but thinking forward. And, and web design is definitely a place where I think our, 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 our modern day user just does not go back, their, their, their memory does not go back to a time where they just couldn't see a variety of fonts on web. Their, their expectations are the same as what, why wouldn't I be able to see the myriad of fonts on, in print as I do on web and, and vice versa. So 
Right. Well, there are, there are other things, too. Uh, by uh, using fonts, uh, like we allow uh, installing the fonts locally along with the rest of your HTML and CSS and everything else. Um, and we provide the CSS files along with the web fonts in all the different web font formats, even some that you may never use. Um, uh, we make it really easy for you to just add the fonts locally in your website so you can avoid um, to the problem of what's called FOUT or F-O-U-T where, you know, say you've uh, created your website with these non-system fonts. Um, mm -hmm. For just a millisecond, you might still see the font show up in Times Roman before it flips to what the actual custom font is. And you see this even on, um, you know, depending on what your internet connectivity is on any particular hour of the day, and whether you're on a network that happens to be a, a, an efficient network or, you know, badly run network, it all affects it. And so by allowing um, uh, the local installation of our web fonts right along with your HTML, um, you uh, cut down on the potential for that, that uh, switch happening where, you know, the site momentarily doesn't look like what you designed at all. You know, it looks like, you know, it was set in uh, Times Roman for a moment or Arial for a moment or something. And, you know, what's happening, that kind of thing. Excellent. So, so we're getting, we're getting towards the, the end. So I want to wrap up uh, and give you ample time to, to, to let our listeners know where they can, like you mentioned, buy your fonts and, and, uh, and find your fonts in other products. So um, out of all the fonts that you've birthed over the years, um, <laughs> yeah. which one uh, of your fonts, is would you consider to be your favorite or the one that you wish more people would would use and and then roll right into uh where our listeners may be able to follow you maybe give you know share your handles from social media your website address mm -hmm. um and and where people might be able to buy your fonts and learn more about tracing faces sure well uh my uh, uh luckily you know we've sort of come out on the side of quality over the years and that's allowed us to be um become the part of branding and marketing uh, efforts by so many major blue chip companies around the world. Uh, fonts like my TF Forever series, um, you know, just get used uh, perennially. Um, world Soccer Magazine, for example, um, in the UK, there's a magazine like TV Guide here that's called um, TV and Satellite Weekly Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, cover to cover, it's uh, TF Forever. Um, Connecticut Stone here in uh, Milford just recently switched to my uh, uh, TF Habitat uh, font, uh, which is a really nice, refreshing uh, look for them. Um, and, and over the years, they get used a lot, and uh, I'd still like to see uh, TF Bryn Mawr used more. Um, it's actually, in text sizes, uh, uh, an extremely good text font, uh, as well as uh, for its decorative appeal, you know, for headlines and, and uh, all of that. So um, I look at it as, uh, even though we've sold a lot of it over the years, I still look at it as being one of uh, the series that, even for web use and, and, uh, and all of that, away from print, um, uh, it has, uh, it could do a lot for people that they just don't realize yet because they haven't spent enough time with it. Um, I would encourage people to go to tracyfaces.com 
T-R-E-A-C-Y-F-A-C-E-S.com and uh, spend a couple minutes with our um, type sampler, which is on the homepage. Uh, one of the things that I um, spent a lot of time uh, over the last several years uh, researching was this um, psychological uh, phenomenon called paradox of choice. And, you know, as we add hundreds more fonts in the next couple of years, um, just as it is with other major foundries, um, um, how do you get, um, you know, people to see what's new and different and what can really benefit them without them glazing over, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what happens with a lot of uh, traditional uh, sources like type specimen books and a lot of the, um, a lot of our competitors who just do, you know, page after page of these staccato text blocks, you know, um, and it all gets very boring and, um, uh, and uh, you sort of lose interest at, a, at the very moment when you can't lose interest because it's so important for you to pick the right type, per, uh, per, you know, properly evocative um, and uh, well suited to the storytelling. Um, that's the very moment where you don't want people to zone out. Um, and also because everybody's on deadline, you want to make sure you can get them to the right choices fastest. So I added these, um, uh, you know, apart from the general uh, user experience design of the site and the type sampler, we also have these turbo control tools to help you actually go through what is really 500 fonts uh, that we have literally in seconds. Uh, you can literally familiarize yourself with the entire library and start to get comfortable with something that catches your eye literally in seconds. Yeah. Well, Joe, listen, I, I really enjoyed having you on. Um, I know you and I can, can relate to the advent of the home computer, uh, making everyone a, 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 a do-it-yourself designer, but I firmly believe that the, the hallmark of a, of a true a uh, great graphic designer is, is evident in the mastery of type. Uh, and, and I've seen it in your work. Uh, you're, you know, you're an amazing designer and, and, uh, and you're a wealth of knowledge. And um, I, I hope that our listeners got a lot out of it uh, today with, with regards to the history of type and Tracy faces. Again, it's tracyfaces.com. I, I implore all of you to uh, look up this man, follow him on Instagram um, check out the website, buy some of his fonts, use them. Uh, and, and Joe, this won't be the last time because I think you and I can go down memory lane quite a bit and we need to keep uh, all of that alive and share it with the, with the next generation of designers. Uh, that's our responsibility as, as the stewards of, of uh, the history of design and type. So I appreciate you have, uh, being on our show today. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Mission Control. Until next time, this is Ramon Peralta from Peralta Design and Relaunch Brands. Thank you for taking this journey with us. To learn more about Peralta Design and our work, go to www.peraltadesign.com and subscribe to keep up with the crew.